Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hello, my name's Seamus Cornelius. I'm the executive chairman of Danakali Limited. We're developing the Kaluli Potash project in Eritrea in joint venture with the Eritrea National Mining Corporation, which is Enamco. It is a massive deposit in the Danakil Depression, about 80 kilometers from the Red Sea coast. And we think, and I think our evidence shows that it's the largest undeveloped SOP project in the world, many times larger and many times a higher grade than anything similar. And it is going to be the dominant SOP project in the world within two years. Seamus, thank you for that. That's where we're at right now. Where you're at right now. Good. Well, Seamus, um, thank you very much for joining us on our humble little show. Um, lots of people have been asking us to talk to you. So I appreciate that. Um, should we get some boring questions out of the way? You get these, you're going to be asked these questions all yep. the time. Eritrea risk. Is there a risk? Look, Eritrea as a country is a fantastic and proven mining jurisdiction. The issue that we have with it is that it's not a well-known jurisdiction. And I think the other issue we have, Matt, is that people don't understand what country risk really is. So the fact that a person doesn't understand or know very much about a country has got nothing to do with the risk of investing in that country. The way that I look at risk is to look at what has happened, what mining projects have been in that country and how have they gone. And there's nothing but success as far as foreign invested mining projects in Eritrea is concerned. There's the Bisha mine, there's the Zara mine, and there's the Asmara project. All of those are fantastically successful. On top of those, which are the mines that are more advanced than, than the Kaluli project, there are dozens and dozens of exploration projects, all of them foreign invested. Now, anyone who knows anything about exploration knows that 99% of the time you don't find anything. So the fact that an exploration project did not find anything economic does not mean that it's unsuccessful. That's just what happens with exploration. I'm really focused on what happens with projects where you find an economic deposit, can you develop it? Can you get your money out of the country? Is the tax system, is the regulatory system stable and predictable? And the answer in all of those cases is absolutely yes. That's what the evidence shows. So in summary, if you take a basic risk reward perspective, the risk that is priced on Eritrea country risk is massively mispriced. And I think that's where the opportunity lies. That's why I keep buying shares. And that's why we remain committed to developing the project. Right. And your partner, um, obviously, uh, they, they must help. They do. So our partner is Inamco, the Eritrea National Mining Corporation. They are the same partner that every other exploration and mining project has. So what people don't probably appreciate is that the people who run Inamco are tremendously experienced mining company executives. Inamco only does exploration and mining, and they are the designated partner in every foreign investment project. So they've been over the last 23 years through the entire cycle multiple times. Exploration, usually unsuccessful. Exploration successful. Funding, development, expansion, starting open pit, going underground. Offshore transactions where control has changed hands. Onshore transactions where control has changed hands. This type of experience they've had, there are very few mining executives who have had that same experience. And it's been the same two key people in every single joint venture over the last 20 years. So they're tremendously helpful. They are the state-owned mining corporation and they help us not just in terms of explaining how things work, but in dealing with different government departments. It is very easy to deal with the government departments in Eritrea, but it is easier when you talk to an AMCO and say, look, how should we go about this? And then they help us tremendously. 
Okay, so and we're gonna there's there's a few questions here which are gonna be have have been asked a lot. So let's I just wanna get them out of the way before I get to the interesting growth bit of the yep. story, okay? Which is this is taking you an awful long time. Look at your share chart, it's moved sideways since about 2017. Not a lot for people to be excited about. So why has it taken so long? What what are the what are the problems that you've had to overcome? Okay, the simple fact that it, it has taken a long time. It's taken much longer than we anticipated. Um and there, there are a number of reasons for that, but I'll break them down really simply. It was much more difficult than we expected it would be to get debt financing for the project. Now we got debt financing at the very end of 2019. We signed up US 200 million worth of senior project debt at the project company level with all the normal project finance securities. So a very plain vanilla package. We signed that up with 100 million coming from Africa uh, Finance Corporation, 100 million coming from AfriExim Bank. Now, that took us a lot longer than we thought it would take. It basically took us two years. We thought it would take less than a year. The reason it took a lot longer is because there were a number of things that I did not understand and I did not appreciate. So, for example, before a, a company like Kaluli can borrow money from either of those institutions, the country of Eritrea needs to be a member country of those two institutions. When we started, Eritrea was not a member of either institution. So before we could even get going with the actual negotiations, we had to go through the membership process in both institutions. That took a lot longer than we thought. The other key thing that we didn't appreciate was that actually nobody has ever successfully debt financed a mining project in Eritrea. There's never been a successful drawdown except through the particular Chinese-led type of financings. So no... Western or European or African bank has ever successfully lent into Eritrea. So we were up against that. We're breaking new ground all the time. That's why that took a lot longer. We finally got there in late 2019. We're ready to go beginning of 2020 and everybody knows what's happened in 2020. Right. So, so and that what, threw us off a year. We, we lost a year. Right. You, 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 why, so why, why have you lost a year? Because, you know, people have managed to sort of get on, if not at 100%, then at some reduced rate, but they have been able to get on with business. So I assume you have been doing things. Oh, absolutely. Yes, we have been doing things. And what we did, so, you know, our share price crashed in March 2020, along with everybody else. And that put our equity funding on hold, basically, until this year. So that was why I say we lost a year. With the funds we had in that time, what we did do was, I think, something that's really important. And it's, I admit, for investors, it's pretty boring. But this is what we did, and it's going to pay off. We spent though that time further testing the process of making SOP, which is our first primary product, from the ore that we have in the ground. So we did a hell of a lot more test work in Canada with the Saskatchewan Research Council, overseen by Rodney McEachin, who is our COO, and we basically understood everything down to the finest detail of how do you actually make SOP economically and efficiently from the ore that we have. And that's led us to designing the plant that we will be building at Kaluli to process the ore we have to suit exactly the ore that we have. And we've tested it for all the normal variables, temperature, pressure, water quality, rate of addition of water and all the reagents. So that's what we did. So as we sit here today, we're actually a lot more advanced than we were, but it's not exciting to people. 
It, it's, it's, it's exciting to me, but it's not exciting to the market. I can hear that. Um, like again, just just in terms of um, helping people, perhaps new, not just to this story, but in terms of the the, the whole area of um, SAP and MOP, etc. So, can we can we just sort of do some definitions? Okay, so you you're look, you're focusing on SAP. Can we just try and understand that market? MOP a little bit larger uh, in terms of volume. Uh, SAP um, what 15 percent of is it about what, what's its share of yes, market? About ten percent. About ten percent. Okay. So, 10%. so you're focusing at that at that end of things. But so can, let's do definitions, and then we'll try and understand the market because people need to understand the thesis and if it's something that they can get behind for us. Yep. Okay. So uh, the general potash market is dominated by MOP. That's about seventy million tons a year. The next largest kind of potash is SOP, sulfate of potash. That's about seven million tons a year. So you can see it's about 10% of the market. SOP trades at a significant premium to MOP. The production of MOP is dominated by Canadians, Russians, and Ukraine, Belarus. There's, there's a cartel, although it's not called that, but that's what it is. SOP is fundamentally different. It comes from a whole range of small producers, and half of those producers actually make their SOP artificially. So what that means is they take MOP, they add sulfuric acid to it, they cook it up, and they get SOP. So that, to me, speaks very clearly and directly to the fact that there are insufficient sources of natural SOP, which is what Kalooli is. And the consequence of those guys doing it in that artificial way in a factory is that it's very high cost of production. So all of the low cost producers, and there's not many of those, they're in Canada, um, they're in North America, uh, Compass Minerals in Utah, and they're in China primarily they enjoy massive profit margins because the whole cost curve is held up by the guys who buy the MOP, buy the sulfuric acid, add the energy and turn that into SOP. And that's why there's always roughly 200 to $250 per tonne premium for SOP over MOP. It's basically conversion cost and a few other things. So our thesis is if we have the largest and the lowest cost SOP mine in the world, all of those margins become ours because none of those Mannheim producers, which are the artificial factory-based producers, can ever hope to compete with us. And as I said, that's half of the annual world production. So they are right for us to completely displace them. There is nothing they can do about Kaluli. Okay, so actually, we'll, we'll come on to that. Being a lowest quartile um, cost producer, always advantageous, whatever sector you're in, because because you've got margin to play with. But let's let's come back to you just again understanding the, the terminology. So MOP and SOP, they've got different use cases. So what are what are they? All right, so that's a really good question. So MOP is uh, potassium chloride. The chloride is the important part. The potassium is what plants want. MOP and SOP are fertilizers. They can either be applied directly or they can be blended into an NK, NKP product. But basically, it's fertilizer. And what the plant wants is potassium. Plants do not want chloride. So chloride actually is, is a negative. But some plants are tolerant to it. And it just so happens that those are the large, broad acre crops that go across the Midwest of the you know, United States and all through the wheat belt of Western Australia. That's where MOP goes. SOP has a much narrower but a much higher value use. It goes on citrus fruits, nuts, berries, coffee, tea, potatoes, things. If the easy way to think about it is if the taste of it really matters, you use SOP because you, that's what matters. And so that is why SOP is special and that's why it attracts a premium because it goes on those things. Now, 
It can go on the other stuff. If you had enough SOP, you could throw it happily on all of those, you know, uh, food bowl crops in the United States. But you don't need to because you can throw MOP on that. It's cheaper. Right. So um, you used the phrase um, earlier. You talked about the cartel, right? And I think that's widely accepted with regards to the, the main players and their distribution uh, capabilities and their ability to affect margin for, for people wanting to enter. Okay. Um, if you look at something like BHP and Janssen and they, the, the billions that they've spent buying that, the billions they've invested themselves and the 2.7 billion they've yet to spend if they decide to move ahead. I'm not quite sure where, where they're at at the moment is. They, there's, a, there's a lot of MOP in market. And for anyone hoping to come, come in and take a slice of that market, it would be difficult to do that without affecting the price presumably, and the cartel don't really want that. SOP, talk, talk to me about how that market works specifically. You know, do, do those kind of cartel players influence your ability to um, perform, you know, get financing, to get distribution, to, you know, market yourselves? I mean, how, how do they affect your ability to do business? Actually, they don't because the MIP produces the significant ones. And I'll just make a quick comment about BHP at the end. Um, but the MIP producers are very, very different and very separate to the SOP producers. The SOP producers are much, much smaller. So a 100,000 or 150,000 tonne producer of SOP is a large producer. A lot of these factories that I was talking about are in the 20, 30, 40, 50,000 tonne range. And there's a lot of them. So, for example, down the east coast of China, there's a lot of those producers down there. There are some in Taiwan. And there are some in uh, Europe. So they don't produce that much. The, the biggest guys who do this, either pure Mannheim or quasi Mannheim guys, are actually sitting in Europe because there is no natural supply of SOP in that whole time zone. So if I take Europe, the Med, Africa, over to India, there's no primary SOP producer there. So those two and a half to three million tonnes that get used there all come out of factories. They're all high cost. It's a fundamentally different industry structure to the MOP. And if I just quickly say I'm BHP, if I was a betting man, I bet that they will choose to go ahead with Janssen. They've sunk $5 billion to it already. They're going to at least sink another $5 billion. And just by my simple analysis, they haven't made a $10 billion mistake for about a decade, and it's time, and they need to do it. So that's what's going to happen. Sorry, did I hear you right? They haven't made a $10 billion mistake for a while. Is that what you just said? That's what I said. Yes, they haven't. And they've got massive cash flows coming in from the high iron ore prices. And it's about time for them to make another $10 billion mistake. You know, you can look back at the, the gas in and oil, shale oil in America. You can look back at hot brick plants before that. The list goes on and it, it's they're ready for it. They need to. They've got massive cash flows. They don't want to give the money back to the shareholders, which is what they should do. So it's time for a $10 billion mistake. That's where my money is. They're going to do it. Excellent. And it's not relevant to us at all. Right. Okay. So, well, that's the bit I really care about. You know, what, what, what the, the, if, the, if you're saying the, the cartel of companies of which, you know, Russians, Belarusian, Canadians, et cetera, if they cannot affect your marketing, your ability to market or pricing, um, then it, it, it's kind of, a, it's a secondary issue for me. So what is the size of your market? Because in total, the potash market is what, about 8 billion? Is that, 
Is that about right? I mean, what size of it? No, it's about 7 million tonnes per year. Roughly 7 million tonnes produced, 7 million tonnes consumed. So we're targeting our module one is 472,000 tonnes, you know, give or take. That uh, It shouldn't be that specific, but that's what it is. Okay, so what's that in dollar terms? Uh, dollar terms, if I use a $600 a tonne price, um, so what am I looking at there? 600 times 470,000, um, what is it, 4.2 billion markets, something like that. Right, okay, around that. Okay, so um, so talk to me about some of the things that you've been doing recently. And I, well, I want to come back to the marketing bit in a second, but you know, I saw the announcement with regards to a slight technical change, the ability to use seawater, obviously reducing capex, yep. which, which is, which ends the foot, you know, your carbon footprint and all that kind of green credential stuff that people like to talk about these days. Um, so was that in the making for some time? Was that part of one of the long poles in the tent, as it were, in terms of um, your ability to move forward? or? We're happy to happy no, to continue so along with the it, previous it, technology. We were happy to continue along with the previous technology, but what we did for about eight months last year, you know, alongside the test work that I mentioned earlier over in Canada, we had DRA, which is our EPCM contractor, review all of our previous studies, focusing on the feed study that we had finished in 2017. And basically their objective was bring that feed study up to date redo all the pricing because we had sort of 2017 pricing in there for our CapEx and our OpEx and so on. So bring it all up to date and look for any fatal flaws. Check through that previous work and see whether they were prepared to build against that. So what happens when you have a contractor like DRA is you contract with them to build a certain plant in a certain time frame at a certain cost, and they have to commit to do that. Now, because DRA didn't do the earlier studies, it makes perfect sense that they want to look at those earlier studies before they commit contractually and say, right, we can build this at this cost in this time and take that risk. So in the course of doing that, our previous studies had been based on the idea that we would take Red Sea water and desalinate it and then send the desalinated water to our plant, which is about 80 kilometres inland, and use that as our process water. Now, in hindsight, it seems really simple, but someone asked the question, why are you sending fresh water as your process water into your plant and then absolutely supersaturating it with salt. Wouldn't it make sense that the tiny little bit of salt in seawater is irrelevant compared to the massive amounts of salt that you are putting in there to process? And that was kind of like a light bulb moment. And then we decided, yeah, actually, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. So why don't we test that? Now, intuitively, and based on the software program that you can use to do these kind of chemistry tests, it made sense. But we tested it with the water and with our ore in Canada. And it turns out, absolutely, it's right. That tiny, I mean, I know people think seawater is salty, but I can tell you that the water in the ground at Kaluli is hundreds of times saltier than the seawater. So you can imagine um, what our process water is going to be when we stuff it full of salt. So the tiny bit of salt in the seawater is irrelevant, especially given the primary function of our process plant is to remove the salt that we don't want and leave us with potassium sulfate, which is SOP, which is what we do want. So adding a tiny bit of seawater is nothing. And that was a giant breakthrough because it changed the whole way that we looked at all of that seaside infrastructure. There was going to be a significant desal plant and all of that. 
it's not going to be that anymore. It's just going to be a pump, pump the seawater in, saves us a lot, but also it reduces the environmental footprint because, you know, sometimes it, it's miss, it, well, it's not fully appreciated that if you desalinate water, you've got to put the salt somewhere. So you typically you pump it back into the sea. And the guidelines in Eritrea were saying you need a one and a half kilometre pipe underground, or you know, under the sea to make sure that that salty water goes out into deep enough water so that it doesn't affect the coral and affect the fish and so on. So not having that happen for 200 years is, is actually really good. Right. Okay. So, so te- technically, th- thanks for explaining that. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is your ability to get into production, because you, you've, you've mentioned the debt component there. You've recently raised 20 million bucks as well. You've got whatever, 25, 27 million bucks in the bank. I, I'm, I'm, cons- I'm trying to get to the point where you say, right, we can get it into production now. And this is the time frame. This is the volume we're going to be selling into market at these sorts of prices because it's a small market. I want to see if the volume that you're proposing to put into market is going to affect the pricing that you can get because are you going to swamp the market? So can we just have the conversation about okay. how you get into production why you know, and the time frames around that, please? Okay, that's easy. Let me give this, the numbers to you. Our FOB Misawa cost including royalties and logistics and all mine gate costs, right? So our on-the-ship cost, FOB Masawa Module 1, is $258 US a tonne, $258. The product today in Europe is selling at about $600 a tonne. So that's our market. That's the time zone price, right? That's that's where it is. Um, so you can work the margin back with that we've got between there and now. The producers that compete with us in Europe are Mannheim producers, factory-based. So the cheapest those guys can produce it at is about $400 a tonne, but some of them are at 500. So we have a massive margin against those guys and they actually can't do anything about it. So we don't think, one of the key things we did really early on was look at the market, break it into segments. There's really three markets actually in the world for SOP. There's our time zone, there's the American time zone and there's the China time zone. And there's a slight difference in the price. In our time zone, all the producers are high cost, expensive producers. And our tons can go into that market very easily without disrupting the price. That's why we're producing 472,000 tons. You know, you look at the size of our asset. If we stayed at that scale, Matt, we'd be doing it for 400 years. So clearly the objective is get it up and running keep the capex low, and then expand as quickly as we can. So we talk about module one and we talk about module two. It's not going to stop at module two. You know, our our medium-term objective is to get rid of all of those Mannheim producers. So that takes us to 2 million tonnes. And then we'll start looking to India and South America because they can't compete. Okay, so your objective, your business plan, your, your model is to undercut all of these synthetic SAP producers, these Mannheim producers, um, will at least make it very, very difficult f- for them. You saying that in public is going to make them very nervous. So what are the levers that they've got available to them to make this difficult for you? Um, well, I suppose, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, they, they, they have a challenge because the, the environmental impact that they have they produce SOP. They also produce massive amounts of hydrochloric acid. Now, hydrochloric acid has to be disposed of. The only real place that you can dispose of it is in the steel industry. And everybody knows that the European steel industry, well, let's just say the Chinese and the Koreans and the Japanese have been eating away at it for a long time. So 
the environmental cost of dealing with that hydrochloric acid and the regulations around producing this type of SOP in Europe, they're not favourable for those guys. And they can't do anything about the cost. So their cost of production is fixed by the cost of MOP, sulfuric acid and power. I, I don't see what they can. But I should point out, our plan is not really to undercut them because there's expected to be a lot of growth in SOP. So what we really aim at, necessarily we will take some of their volume, that's fine. But we're looking at Africa and India because those two markets are our natural markets and they are serious underutilizers of SOP. The main reason that they're underutilizing it is because they can't afford it and they can't get it. And it's actually better. Every producer of a raw material or, or every raw material process producer, they want to sell it to the closest possible customer. So those European-based producers, say Germany and Belgium and the like, their best customers are Spain, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. Why would they bother supplying it to Africa or India? But for us, the growth markets of the future are exactly there in Africa and India. Because SOP, I'll just quickly explain this. SOP inside the fertilizer space occupies a particular niche. So fertilizer generally is a population story. Within that population story, SOP is an economic growth story because of the crops that it has to be used on. It doesn't go on the crops that, that fill the belly. It goes on the crops that people start to want to buy and want to eat fruits, nuts, high quality veggies, citrus fruits, as soon as they have some economic spending power. The evidence in China is massively positive for this. So if you were to go back 30 years into China, you'd probably have an application rate of about, uh, you know, four kilograms per hectare. Today, it's 70 kilograms per hectare of SOP. And that's not because the population has increased that much. It's because the economic spending power of the population has increased. So what they want to eat, what they want to spend their money on changes. The same thing's going to happen in Africa. The same thing's going to happen in India. And nobody can compete with us. Okay, so it's not necessarily... So that's really our plan. Right. Okay, but you, you said, you know, they can't afford to. So the Africa component, the India component, they can't afford to buy SAP as it is currently produced. So it does suggest that you're going to undercut as part of your key strategy, unless you're telling me you're going to sell it all into China. Or so where, where, what is the market that you're actually after in terms of those three time zones? Our time zone, absolute first priority, Southern Europe. So also you have to appreciate, and you know, anyone looking at these different companies and working out what the commodity price is, right? There's a headline commodity price, there's a spot price, there's a contract price. None of those things actually matter to a producer. What matters to a producer is net back price. So you have to take that headline spot price and you it's first thing you take out is storage and logistics cost of getting it to the customer because they're not yours. That, that, that's not your profit. So you have to pay attention to what's the net back price. And this ties into why I said before, obviously you want to supply it to the closest possible producer. So even we can theoretically undercut those guys simply by offering the same price but we get a much bigger piece of that as our net back. So to the customer, it doesn't make any difference, but to us, it makes a huge difference because our logistics, if we're sending it to Africa, that we've got a massive advantage. It costs us much less. So we could say, instead of 600, we'll give it to you for 580. The real cost for a farmer in Africa is not 600. It's probably 650 because they have to pay the logistics cost of getting it from Germany or Belgium to there. 
It's really the net back that matters. I, I, I get that that's where the potential benefit to you is. But if you're trying to walk into established market with established players, with relationships, distribution, uh, with customers, long-standing customers, you're going to have to do something different for the customer to move. And ultimately, surely that comes down to price. Okay. We, we are, we, that's, that, I see what you're getting at. And uh, look, so we are not, day one, setting up our own distribution network because of the points you just made. We're not doing it. We've got a joint... We've got an um, offtake agreement with Eurochem. It's a 10-year agreement. Eurochem is a big fertilizer producer, big fertilizer trader. So our deal with those guys is we deliver the material to you, FOB Masawa. You take it from there through your networks. You get it to the customers. They get a fee for doing that. So there's no cap, there's no floor on the price. It's a market-based price. But the fee they get for doing that for us is based on our net back. It's not based on a headline price. So they get a percentage of our net back, a very low single figure percentage. And we have what's called an open book relationship with them. So we get to see everything that happens and all the steps and all the costs between picking it up FOB Masawa and getting it to the end customer. We do that for 10 years for, this is a little bit sometimes confusing to people, but I'll try and explain it, for up to 100% of module one. The reason we say up to 100% is it's a minimum of 87%. We have to give them and they have to take 87% of module one, which is about 400,000 tons. We get to choose whether we give them the balance of the other 70,000 tons, which is the 13%. If we don't want to, we can give that into the local market. We can give it to, you know, we, we can sell it into Eritrea. We can sell it into Saudi Arabia, whatever. That's our choice every quarter. Got it. Okay. So this is really important because we're getting to the weeds a bit here. So it's 87% of module one, right? One. One, okay. Uh, and up to 100% at your election. Okay, so that the last 13% is at your discretion, your election, right? Um, so we're you're talking about module two, module three, module four, et cetera. So you're going you're gonna to have optionality in terms of the sorts of deals you do going forward. But with this specific deal, okay, these sorts of distribution companies make, you know, their sales guys will sell whatever makes them individually the most amount of money and the company the most amount of money. So you've had to incentivize this partner, distribution partner, to make your product competitive. And you think you've done that. They're not going to push other products. We think instead. we do because they don't have they don't have any other alternative SOP supplier. And their stated objective, so the 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 primary decision makers in that company have come out and said publicly that specialty fertilizers are the future. So they are an MOP fertilizer producer, but their stated objective is to get into the specialty, the higher value fertilizers, which includes SOP. And also they are a very big producer of NPK. So NPK is nitrogen, phosphate, potassium. They have plants, you know, they have a very good plant in Antwerp. So right now, in order to make some of their higher grade, higher quality NPK formulations, they buy their SOP from some of their direct competitors and they don't want to continue doing that indefinitely. So that's why we come in. So not all of the product we give them will be going out into the market where they are actually selling it to third parties. It will be replacing their current suppliers. That's about 150,000 tonnes per year that they bring in and they don't want to continue doing that for, for the obvious reasons, that they buy it from their direct competitors 
they'd rather buy it from us. Right. So you've you've got a very simple product. It's you know at surface or near, near, near surface. You've got the margin there. You've got a distribution partner for for module one, and you would look to either continue working with them or bring other people in. Um, we've seen in the, in the natural resources space, mining companies want to kind of move downstream because they get a different kind of multiple, a different sort of re-rate. Um, with this, obviously, you've got to take care of your knitting because you, you, you know, like I say, you've been at it a while. You've got to get, you've got to deliver this this component here. Is there an option for you further down the line to move downstream, to be able to do your own NPK type solutions or different products that you may, may wish to create for the marketplace? Is that, is that something that's in consideration or is it just, well, let's, let's try and get this thing going first? Uh, it's absolutely focused on getting Kalula going first. I mean, the, the capital behind it, you know, making an NPK plan and the business case for that, that's not something we've even bothered to look at because uh, with our deposit, we can make SOP and we will make SOP, but there are plenty of other things that we can make out of the same deposit with a far smaller capital requirement and that we can then leverage off that existing infrastructure. That is far superior for us. So for example, rock salt, gypsum, SOPM, all of these things can come out of that deposit at a profit for very little extra capital and even very little extra operating costs. So for example, with the rock salt, we dig through a fantastically thick seam of rock salt that is over 98% pure NACL, so it meets all these requirements that exist in Europe and America. We dig through that. It's about six metres thick. And then we put it in a giant pile because rock salt has a value, but the value of rock salt won't carry the logistics cost of getting it to the current port. So we just put it over there. We, we will do those things first. Rock salt, gypsum, SOPM. And then at some point in the future, you know, the way that anyone would sensibly do an NPK plant in that part of the world is you'd probably look at Saudi Arabia and, you know, you might get your uh, N from there, given their massive oil and gas business, and you'd probably get your P from Morocco or somewhere like that, OCP. But that that's a totally different game for us, and it's not something that we're focused on at all. We want to get them, we want to get Kaluli in production, and then we want to start to exploit the full suite of minerals that Kaluli has. So that that's 10, 20 years at least. Okay. So it's for the, us that's of growth. the Kisarai, the rock salt, salt, gypsum, et cetera, future revenue streams potentially. Okay. Understood. Yeah. Um, where do I want to go here? Because I, I think you've, you've kind of said, right, there's, there's the market. There's where we sit in it. You've got distribution product. You're going to focus on this. There's some byproducts coming down the line. I've got to talk about the, the valuation at the moment. 160 million Aussie. It's not. It's not a big company, um, given what you're talking no. about. Some of the numbers that you're throwing out there. Some of the potential that you're talking about. So yeah, there's a kind of Eritrea discount component going on here, and the fact that everything's taken a little bit longer than than you'd hoped. Um, the recent raise yep. of money is to do some of the infrastructure type of you know road development. You know. Some of the geotechnical um, optimization, and you, you talked about rivers, yep. osmosis plant, etc. Is that is that going to take you, you know, far enough down the line to be able to start being able to draw down some of this debt to be able to move towards production in a timely fashion, or are you sitting there as a potential, you know, takeout target because you're just not moving at the pace that the market wants you to? Well, there's two questions there. So the first answer is that. Raise is not going to take us far enough down the path to actually start drawing down the debt. We haven't drawn down any debt yet, 
we are not able to draw down the debt until we meet all the CPs. So, and the fundamentally important CP is raise the equity. That's what we're focused on, right? There are some other CPs like sign up the mining contract, sign up the power contract, sign up the camp contract, et cetera, et cetera. But those things are almost, we could sign them tomorrow if we had the funding. So the critical thing for us is to raise the balance of the funding. Um, that raise we did back in May, small piece of that, yes, but it's not going to take us down. So our energy right now is to raise the funding. I think we've got a couple of discounts that apply to our stock price. First, Eritrea discount. Second, people know that we still need to raise money. Um, there's two ways that we're going to close that gap. First, we will talking, we're, we're talking very actively and uh, at an advanced level with our lenders about getting further senior debt because the project can handle further senior debt. That's obviously fantastic from an equity shareholder point of view. And it's good for the banks too, because that brings forward the time at which we draw down. It brings forward their revenue stream. So that's great. And as I said, the project can handle that easily. Um, and then there's the equity component. So we have got a dual track process going on. And uh, look, I, you know, the, the, const, the, the continuous disclosure rules are such that I shouldn't say too much, but we're at a very advanced point uh, in that process where we will be able to go to our shareholders and say, shareholders, here is a deal. You can take it or you cannot take it. That's that's the next step for us. Okay. And does that deal, is that deal, well, it's one of, it's one of those difficult things, isn't it? Because you can always refinance and restructure deals, you know, you know, 12 months down the line. So the cost of that money might be more than you necessarily want to pay now, but you've got to get it over the line because that is one of the discounts being applied here. And that is a defense strategy worth paying for, is it? Absolutely. I mean, the critical value driver for us right now is to be funded and start the development. We know what the timeline's like. We know we've done most of the engineering. We've done all of the test work we could possibly do. I expect that while it's possible we're a takeover target now, there's no imperative for anybody to take us now. They want to see us develop this thing further, de-risk this thing further, and they would prefer to take it then. So we're in the middle ground where what is important for us and what drives the value is getting the balance of the funding. And so that's where all our energy is going. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, debt and equity and get the show on the road, uh, as they say. Um, look, Seamus, look, I appreciate you kind of sort of deconstructing that for me and helping me understand it because it's, I think people get confused with potash. You know, you know people... It's a big, complicated market with big players and you know cartels or words like that don't help, but you've got a very niche uh, market. It's interesting to see how you've come at it. Uh, good luck with the financing. I look forward to hearing uh, news on that front soon. Thanks very much, Matt. I'd love to be back here telling you that we've got the money and uh, we're asking our shareholders to approve the way we're getting it. So I look forward to that. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.